You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Our Lord, uh, we pray that you would illumine our hearts uh, to see you as the God who saves and the God who sustains, uh, the God who will deliver his people. And Lord, that we would uh, believe that even in our day. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. So most of us are familiar with the book of Exodus, even if we've just seen the Ten Commandments uh, with Charlton Heston. Uh, that, that gives you a little bit of a thumbnail sketch, although over-dramatizes it a little bit. But Exodus is the history of God's delivering his people from the awful bondage of Egypt. That's what the Exodus is about. Exodus means literally going out, leaving, going out. So... Um, uh, in fact, uh, in, uh, in some Greek uh, places, you will be able to see a sign that says Exodus. And that's you, that's, that will let you know on the Greek airplane, that's the way out, right? Exodus. But much more than that, Exodus is God's great picture book of how he calls and redeems a people for his possession. Exodus is God's great picture book of how he calls and redeems a people for his own possession. Isn't that true? Some of the most vivid images in the entirety of the Bible are found in Exodus. What are some of the things that we might remember? Parting of the Red Sea, that's a big one. Plagues, yeah, plagues, the Passover, water from the rock. Um, uh, Even though uh, it's in numbers, uh, snakes in the camp. Remember numbers where uh, the people grumbled so much that God let loose of this poisonous snakes and Moses fashioned a pole with a bronze serpent on it and anybody who looked to it would be healed. And Jesus references that uh, in John's gospel. Uh, so, there all the, so even Jesus was using the story, at least, of the Exodus uh, as an illustration. It's illustrative of God uh, calling and redeeming a people for his own possession. And he does that in order that they might become a distinctive people under him, living for his glory and praise. Uh, when we get to Leviticus, how many, of you, how many of y'all have ever tried to read the book of Leviticus? How long did you last? I mean, after a while, it's like, yeah, blah, 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 blah. There are a couple juicy parts in there, like I'm going to pay attention to that, uh, just because it's, it's interesting. Uh, but by and large, very few of us have probably ever done a Bible study on Leviticus. And yet uh, Leviticus is actually uh, a great outline of what made God's people different than all the other cultures around them. So uh, even in in Egypt, you see this. um, Certainly when they get into Canaan, uh, God's people are always distinctive in a way that rubs up against the culture around them. It angers them. So even today, I didn't get into it, but the story of the return from Babylon... Uh, when they got back to uh, Jerusalem and Ezra started building the temple again, the people who lived in the area, the surrounding area of Jerusalem said, hey, let us help you. We'll help you build the temple. And what did Ezra say? No way. You catch your filthy paws off my bricks. And, uh, and that caused problems too and actually halted the work there because they went back to Babylon and, and ratted the, the Jewish people out. But nonetheless... Um, And I know that when we talk about God's law 
everyone wants to contextualize it. Everyone wants to say, well, uh, well, for instance, uh, the Jewish prohibition against eating shellfish. And I've heard, and I think that maybe this is partly true. God wants to preserve a people. And so maybe God had that law so that people wouldn't eat shellfish and die because they don't have, they didn't have the same sanitary standards that, that we have today. And that may indeed be a contributing factor. Um, but why do they follow the laws of God? Because he said so. You know, this is, we've all used this line as parents. Well, why do I have to do that? Because I'm your father and I said so. And that doesn't sound very loving, but it really, it, it is in the sense that you are being set apart. You're, you're different. So by not eating shellfish, which today you could do so with, with some uh, ease uh, when it comes to health issues. Uh, but the reason why you would refrain from doing that as a Jew is because you want people to see that you are set apart. Now, um, the reformers came along and they were very helpful in parsing some of this out because some of you may be thinking, well, why don't we follow those laws today? Or why do we follow certain laws but not others? So, for instance, one of the prohibitions is you cannot wear blended fabric or fiber clothing. So if you're wearing a cotton poly shirt today, you're technically in violation of, of the law. Um, but why are we, why would we follow a law? Uh, why would we say we can disregard that law, but the moral laws we still follow? Well, actually in our articles of religion, there's a very helpful ethical statement that says that in those areas that are ceremonial, um, We've they've been fulfilled in Jesus, haven't they? So some of the things around ceremonial laws have been fulfilled by Jesus. And actually, to take it a step further, Jesus says, in, uh, says to us that it's not that what goes into a man that defiles him, but what comes out. So Jesus, even in his own ministry, in his own day, was saying that these laws concerning dietary considerations are now abolished. And then in Acts chapter 10, remember Peter has the dream and the sheet is lowered and there are all these animals he's not allowed to eat. And Jesus says, go have a barbecue sandwich. And Peter says, I can't, these are unclean. And Jesus says, don't call anything that I have made unclean. So that would, so the ceremonial law has been fulfilled in Jesus at Jesus' express command. Uh, we no longer follow the dietary laws, but the moral laws, which Jesus affirmed in his own ministry, uh, are still in standing. And not only are they, at one point in time, they were distinctive to God's people, but they've in fact become the framework for most law around the world, haven't they? And even at the University of Virginia, the science lecture halls are in what used to be the, the law school. And when you walk into this beautiful um, uh, atrium when you first walk in there are these murals and they are prominently displayed at the university of virginia virginia thomas jefferson secular university is moses moses with the law right an acknowledgement that that has had a tremendous influence and so saying you shouldn't murder people is not a distinctly christian thing but is to the benefit of the entire world but god has these laws in order to make a statement that you are different you're different you're you're set apart and I certainly wouldn't call it a law, but if there's anything that sets apart Christians today, it's grace. Right? It's the gospel. We're, we're different in that regard. 
Because the world doesn't function that way. That's a very distinctive difference between Christianity and the world, and we're going to get into that. So God saves these people that they might become a distinctive people under him, living for his glory and praise. Exodus is a story of God covenanting with a sinful people in order to show his mercy and grace. That's why he does it. He covenants with a sinful and wayward and grumbling, terrible people. And grumbling is going to come up a lot. But in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul lays grumbling as a sin on the same level as idolatry and sexual immorality. Right, that, that hurts me um, a little bit. Um, I don't know about you, but it's at least convicting uh, for me. And uh, Exodus is cited uh, throughout uh, the Bible. And in fact, Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians 10 a lovely uh, little uh, um, elucidation um, uh, on, uh, on the Exodus. When he says... For I want you to know, brothers, that all our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the same cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food. And all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now hear this, verse 6. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Why did somebody write down Exodus? That we might, might not desire evil as they did. So Paul is actually preaching in 1 Corinthians 10 on Exodus. He's, he's bringing it out. And of course, it's cited... Uh, elsewhere uh, throughout the Bible, especially uh, in reminding uh, the Jewish people, uh, tell your children and your children's children the great deeds that God has done in the life of his people. And then the next lines are always what? Something along the lines of how he brought you out of Egypt and how he led you through the Red Sea, how he brought you through the wilderness, how he gave you a good land. So Exodus is a, is a significant book of the Bible. And of course, the Exodus foreshadows the eternal rescue from a worse bondage than Egypt. There's actually a worse bondage than Egypt, and that's called sin. And Exodus foreshadows the eternal rescue that we have in Jesus Christ. It's all over the place in Exodus. And it's not just reading between the lines. You have ex explicit statements in the New Testament about Christ, our Passover lamb, is sacrificed for us. Jesus is, is the true lamb that was sacrificed once and for all for us. The Passover points to the Lord Jesus Christ. So what do we find in Exodus? Well, as I said before, God's pattern in dealing with his people. We can see in Exodus, this is how God deals with his people. So if you ever wonder, how does God deal with us? Just read Exodus. In the first instance, God shows us his plan for saving his people. All of the elements of the gospel are found in Exodus. All of them. The whole of the gospel is foreshadowed in the book of Exodus. Salvation from bondage, by grace, 
through the shedding of blood and being led into newness of life. That's all in Exodus. Secondly, God's plan for shaping his people. When God brings the Israelites out of Egypt, that was the beginning of his greater purpose. That wasn't the ultimate goal, right? Just get you out of Egypt. But actually, he had a greater purpose for them. They would become a people where others in surrounding communities would say to them, God is truly with them. So if you listen to the sermon this morning, I've been spending a lot for one sermon. I've been dwelling in Babylon for a long time. And that's a reoccurring theme that, uh, you know, you, you read of the of of. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, you read of Nebuchadnezzar and the hand on the writing on the wall. Uh, Cyrus's heart being moved by God, where they all say, even though they don't really believe themselves, they say that is the true and living God. So when Cyrus tells the Israelites to go back and build the temple, he speaks of the living God. The one true God. Go and build this temple. Make this happen. He may not have a relationship with them, but just by observation, he can say, you are a people of the true God. Uh, and, and certainly Pharaoh's army learned that when they were covered up in the Red Sea. And so they have a greater purpose, and God's plan is to shape his people while uh, they are in the wilderness because God is dwelling with them and he is known by them. So in uh, the Old Testament, where does God live? Two places. In the tabernacle, which we're going to get to, which is just sort of um, like us in the parking lot, basically. Um, it's, it's a sort of floating church that, that is set up and wherever they happen to be, that's where it's all going to happen. And then ultimately they would get uh, to the temple and that's uh, where God's presence was. Uh, and the New Testament speaks of temples too, but what is the temple of God in the New Testament? We are, right? We are. We're, we're living stones that, that are put together to, to make a temple, and you individually are a temple of the living God as God's Spirit dwells within you. And so God is persistent in shaping His people. So where the tabernacle and the temple were actually foreshadowing you in many ways. that That's where God would dwell. Thirdly, uh, Exodus shows us God's plan for succoring his people. Now, I just use that because it's a good prayer book word. Uh, but does anybody know what succor means? Comfort, yeah. Uh, comfort, uh, but maybe a little bit deeper, sort of the image that Isaiah gives us this morning in chapter 40 of, of gathering up the lambs in his arms. So it's, it's more than just words. It's actual uh, help. Uh, it's actual protection. It's actual love. Um, it's God's infinite care. And Exodus shows us that God has infinite care uh, for his people because Exodus shows us what kind of God God is. What kind of God God is. He provides for his people time and time again. He provides leadership in Moses and others. He provides the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. He pro provides protection. 
He provides uh, when they're hungry. He provides when they're thirsty. He provides pardon when they've sinned. And he promises for their future. And you're going to see all of these amazing things that, that God does out of nothing. Because what kind of resources do you have in the wilderness? None. Right? Wilderness is bad. I mean, that's a, that's a bad place. You don't want to be in the wilderness. I remember reading the book Hatchet when I was in the fifth grade. Did y'all read the book Hatchet? And you're just sort of like, up. you know, you read it, and you're like, man, I could do that. Uh, but, um, but the reality is that the wilderness is a bad thing, and, and most people sort of chalk you up uh, for, as a goner. And so as they went into the wilderness, I wonder if any people back in Egypt said, well, that's the last we'll see them, uh, because they're just not going to be able to make it. Uh, and indeed, we see the New Testament parallel when Jesus uh, feeds the 5,000. Do you remember that? Where he talks to Philip and Andrew and says, uh, they say, look, we, these people are going to get hungry. We've got to go, got to go back into town. And even there, will we have enough resources to feed them? And Jesus says, you give them something to eat. And what do they come up with? A bag lunch, some kids lunch. And our stained glass window on the, on the lectern side, look at it, captures the moment perfectly because everybody's looking at Jesus except one, one person. The little boy who's got his face buried in his mother's dress because these guys just stole his lunch. It's, it's not a happy occurrence for that, for that. He didn't say, oh, here, you may have it. Um, and so he made them sit down and he fed them in the wilderness. It's an extraordinary miracle. There was nothing attributable to it of, oh, really, they, they went, there's a, a hidden bakery in the caves over there uh, on the other side of the sea. No, he just did something miraculous. And in the same way, this is what God does for his people uh, in the Exodus. And so I'm often confronted with the question, time and time again as I read Exodus, is the God of Exodus my God? Is that the God I believe in? Or do we read it sort of like a fairy tale? Or if, eh, God might have done it back then. But is my God the God of Exodus? So for the provision of the Advent, are we looking to God? For your own life, are you looking to God? Are we looking to God and other resources? Or primarily to him? Do we really believe in this living God? Now there's a temptation in each of us to settle down into a life believing that God never does anything. And we drift into this condition when we hold the faith once delivered. Because our belief in God is not unsettled. We believe in him, and we would even say, yeah, I believe that that's, you know, the God in Exodus is the same God in the Gospels and in Galatians and Revelation. Yeah, I absolutely believe. But we don't believe in God as Moses learned to believe in him. And that's something you have to learn through experience of, of grappling with God and realizing, I mean, think about that. Moses is supposed to lead. It's a, I have no idea how he did it uh, and how he made it. And as sad as it was where God said, you're not going to see the promised land, just to be delivered from the leadership of the people of Israel, kill me. Just, just end it. 
uh, I don't need to see the promised land. But when people started to cry out and say, I'm hungry, I'm thirsty, did you bring us out here to kill us? Moses didn't have a quartermaster general. You know, he couldn't say, how are we doing on beans? How are we doing on, on this? How are we doing on that? In fact, when God says, I'm going to give you bread from heaven called manna, he gives instructions and he says, this is what's going to happen. You gather enough, how much? For one day. One day, except on, there's a certain day, right? For the Sabbath, you, you double up that day. But if you try to gather up more than the one day, what happens? It rots. It rots. That's learning faith. That's, that's learning faith. And to requote Hudson Taylor, that what we, we don't need faith. We need faith in a greater God than we do. Because our lack of faith is often linked to what we think of God. And so if you think of God as something small or not doing anything, you're probably not going to go to him in prayer. You're probably not going to rely on him for things. You're probably not going to think that God might actually provide for you as he's kept you. Uh, you know, the, the, the last song that we sang um, at the 915, as I was listening to that, I, I was thinking about, it says, uh, Lord, I, I brought nothing. I brought nothing and let you, you've provided for me. And I don't know what the author is alluding to, but uh, that could have easily have been an Israelite. What did the Israelites, when they went into Egypt, what did they have? Nothing. And yet God provided for them. Or if you want to talk about Babylon, they were brought in as political prisoners. And after 70 years, some of them had risen to very prominent positions in the government. And they didn't start with anything. I brought nothing, you did it all. And most of us are very capable, resourceful people that if we're honest, we think people need, other people need God a little bit more than we need him. And Exodus says, that's not true. That's not true. If you have a small view of God, um, you're going to probably be relying on yourself uh, in a way that is going to lead to your destruction. Uh, but if you understand who God is and how great he is and what he's able to do, all of a sudden you can confront situations and live through situations that otherwise might be devastating, uh, but you believe in the God of Exodus. And, and that's more than sufficient. So do we really believe in a God on display in Exodus? Okay, chapter 1. I'm going to kind of go through this. Uh, in chapter 1, we have two characters. Uh, our two characters, and you can go home and uh, read all about this. Who are our two characters? One's fairly obvious. The, the other one's a little bit between the lines. Not yet. We're not, we're not to, Moses hadn't even been born in chapter 1. He's just a star in the sky right now. Pharaoh and God. Pharaoh and God are the two characters. Now, if you look uh, at uh, the very tail end of Genesis chapter 50, Joseph um, gives a bit of a, um, of a prophecy 
so Joseph had died in Egypt, and many of y'all know Joseph rose to basically prime minister of Egypt. He saved Egypt from famine. Uh, his brothers tried to uh, uh, kill him, and then they just sold him into slavery. And then there's the, the amazing reconciliation that happens between Joseph and his brothers. And he says, well, y'all just go get everybody and come here. Because the reason why they're in Egypt is because they've run out of, they've run out of food as well. So they moved to Egypt, but then we read the, this uh, in Exodus chapter 1, verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He'd forgotten about him. Institutional memory of any sort is very short. And actually, any time the Israelites are in exile, this is exactly what happens. And they think that maybe they can rest on their laurels. So in fact, there comes a point in the Babylonian exile when Ezra and others have already gone to Jerusalem. And, uh, and when, the, when the, the people around them are told, you can't help us rebuild the temple, uh, they send word back to a king who says, says well, we've got to stop construction. Who do these people think they are? They're a threat to us. And he consults the archives. And what he finds in the archives there back in Babylon is a little note that says, Jerusalem is going to be the greatest pain in the neck you've ever experienced. Never let them rebuild it. But then as time goes on, actually they consult the archives further and they see Cyrus's decree and they say, oh, no, this has been written down. We've consulted it. Ezra can continue the work on the temple, and then later on, Nehemiah would rebuild the walls. But if it's just left up to people to think, oh yeah, I kind of remember, nobody remembers anything. And so anybody who has anything worth remembering, please write it down. I mean, I've even had the experience, this is trivial, but you walk around the house and all of a sudden you see something that has been in your family, an heirloom, like a mantle clock or... Or, some, or even, even a painting or a very old photograph, and you look at it and you think, who in the world is that? Or who gave, whose mantelpiece was that on originally? And you were told at one point in time who it was by your grandmother, maybe even your great-grandmother, uh, but if you don't write it down, you can forget it. And uh, in the same way with Pharaoh, he'd forgotten who Joseph was. He's not bound by any of those memories. And so that's why, you know, you've got these, these pawn shops shows where people take their grandparents' china and silver and, and it makes me want to weep, but they don't remember Joseph. It's just a thing. And we can get into that another time. That's, that's a wrap. Anyway, but, um, but Pharaoh, who did not know Joseph, we read is, he says this, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. It doesn't say it explicitly, but I think a couple things. One, they're a distinct ethnic group. Two, they're distinct in other ways, culturally. So they've maintained Jewish traditions uh, of a sort. Uh, this is, of course, before the giving of the law at Sinai, but there is something different uh, about them. Uh, and, uh, and so Pharaoh is threatened by them. 
because he realizes, golly, this is a this is a powerful force within our own borders that if they rise up, and they've been blessed because of Joseph. They rose to prominence, they were taken care of, they were fully integrated into the, the life of Egypt. But uh, Pharaoh comes, this new Pharaoh comes along and uh, and he says they have to get they have to be gone. And he's bent on the destruction of God's people. Now God, the other character, is the king of heaven who will keep his people. So you have a king of Egypt, one of the greatest kings in the ancient world, who is not just setting himself up against God's people, he's setting himself against the king of God's people, the living God, who promises to keep his people. And we know that God's people cannot be destroyed because God will preserve his church. It's an impossibility. Doesn't mean that great, go back to Jude. It doesn't mean that great harm can come to the church. It doesn't mean that it, it, it won't be brought down to a small remnant. Uh, but God's people cannot be destroyed. They will always persevere. Now, this is maybe one of the earliest recorded occasions of cancel culture. Do you know what cancel culture is? Right? This is when uh, you say or do something that offends somebody on TikTok and they launch you into the sun. It's not just enough to say, I disagree with that, or that's really offensive. It's, I have to destroy you and any memory of you. So what had happened in Egypt is that an illiberal society had, had come about where any sort of uh, culture that would, um, that would stand against the zeitgeist of the day uh, had to be rubbed out completely. And uh, there are two uh, things that have come up recently that have caught my attention. The first is a guy named Gerald Robinson Brown. Nobody has any idea who that guy is, do you? Uh, does anyone know who Captain Tom is? Captain Tom was a 100-year-old World War II veteran that was knighted at 100 years old uh, by the Queen for his efforts to raise money for COVID relief. Remarkable thing, he had this infectious smile. He was a lovely man. He died last week. And, um, and a young clergyman in the Church of England named Gerald Robinson Brown tweeted, man, we got to get rid of that thing, uh, tweeted, that uh, as much as he respected Sir Tom, he didn't like everybody in the country celebrating his life because it was just a reinforcement of white imperial nationalism in England. The wrong thing to say. Just insensitive and all that. I disagree with him. But in response, the church has launched disciplinary action against him. They have basically started to erase this guy because he spoke his mind. And frankly, maybe that would be a good conversation to have. Why is it that, you know, that most of our, I mean, most of the heroes in, in the UK uh, are of uh, Anglo origin and uh, maybe we can be more diverse and celebrate other people who have made other contrib contributions. Now, I don't think that means putting down Sir Tom, uh, but I was just struck by how everybody wanted to take this guy and destroy him because he spoke his mind. And we live in a culture where you're not allowed to do that anymore. No one can say what they want to say without someone else taking it 
personally. Maybe all have been in those conversations where you say something. Um, I, the first place where I think culture cancel, uh, cancel culture came uh, to the United States was in New Orleans. Because in 2002, I was sitting at a dinner table in New Orleans at a, at a restaurant. It was late at night. We'd had a big night. And there were about 10 of us around the table. And someone brought up the issue of aliens. And I said, well, I really can't get into the idea of aliens. I just, I just don't buy it. All nine other people were incensed with me. Like, you are a narrow-minded, stupid little person who doesn't know what they're talking about and should just keep their mouth shut if they can't, if they can't engage in, a, in an intellectual conversation. I was like, aliens. Aliens. They all took it personally. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, uh, in many ways, is this country music star Morgan... Wallen, Whalen, right? He's the guy who uh, got busted down in Tuscaloosa uh, for partying without a mask on. And um, that was when Innisfree made Saturday Night Live. Um, it was on there. And then, um, so he got in trouble for that. Saturday Night Live canceled his performance, but then they let him back on. And the latest thing is a neighbor videotaped this guy coming in late at night, lots of noise, Shout, uh, shouting obscenities and uh, and ultimately using a racial slur, and um, and it's awful and it's ugly and you can listen to it online, uh, but the response has been not, hey man, you've got a huge platform, and you need to use it for good, and you've clearly got issues from the Tuscaloosa partying to coming in at night, like how can we help you get keep it between the ditches? No, the answer was no longer eligible to be nominated for a country music award. Uh, all of his music has been taken down off of any song service, Apple, uh, uh, Spotify, you name it. Um, his record label has suspended. Basically, he's gone. And any record of him as a human being is completely gone. If you want to know what this looks like, go look at Romans 3. Well, this is what Pharaoh's doing. Pharaoh's like, I am going to launch you into the sun and make you disappear. And we experience this today. There are any number of pharaohs in the world today that um, are against um, anybody. It's an, the law is an equal opportunity gobble-upper. This is what happens. Well, how is Pharaoh going to do this? That's my little uh, cancel culture, culture rant. How is Pharaoh going to do this? Well, he has three means of attack. The first one in verse 8. He says um, that, uh, so we already read that part. Um, he says, therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. So what does he do? Uh, and then in uh, verse 14, um, and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So what's his first thing that he does to subdue them? He enslaves them. So yesterday you were an accountant, today you're making bricks. Right? You're, we're going to subdue you, we're going to control you. Um, and so Pharaoh seeks to afflict God's people with heavy burdens, and I also don't lose sight of the fact that he wants to make their lives bitter. 
He wants to make their lives bitter. But we see that God is at work. Verse 12. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. God meets this attack of enslavement and bitterness by increasing the number of Israelites in Egypt. That's how God responds. So Pharaoh in verse 15 says, we got to figure out something else. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birthstool, if it's a son, kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. So infanticide, the baby comes out, kill it. Pharaoh committed the policy into the very hands of those who would thwart it. Verse 20, so God dealt with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. What does that mean? The midwives didn't listen. They didn't listen. Well, that was very brave of them because it's not going to escape Pharaoh's notice, is it? Like all of a sudden, why are the Hebrews fielding a little league baseball team? There shouldn't be any of them. So he turns it up. Then Pharaoh, in verse 22, commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Drown the babies. That's what he says. He wants to be able to see them. He wants to know that his plan is actually coming to fruition by being able to look in the Nile and to see babies float by. But in chapter 2, we see how God frustrates this, even turning it to his own purpose. Because what baby was cast into the Nile? Moses. And what happened? It not only, he not only survived, but he floated right into the hands of the woman who could make sure that, fair, that Moses would be educated and brought up in such a way that would prepare him to lead God's people through the wilderness. And not just that, she had a maidservant who she said, I want you to raise this boy as your own. And who was that maidservant? Moses Mahler. His own, she, he returned to her. So that's God's response. He can't be thwarted. He's in control. Pharaoh is not. Just when it seems like God's people are being thwarted, he has a plan for his people and his plan is indestructible. So even if we are experiencing a hard life and it's bitter, God has a purpose to preserve you until he accomplishes all that he says he will do. John Reese, uh, I don't know who John Reese is, but apparently he was a bigwig for the BBC. I read this story the other day. And uh, John Reese was a committed Christian. And back in the 1970s, the head of the BBC had a meeting with all the muckety-mucks, and, uh, and they really wanted to undo Christianity. And so the head of the BBC talked to his main people, and he said, how can we use our social influence here at the BBC to give Christianity a decent burial in this country? And before anybody could speak, John Reese, who was apparently an elderly man at the time, stood up and with his bony finger pointed at the head of the BBC and said, when you die, 
Well, he, he said, let me get this right. He said, not only will Christianity not be buried in this nation, but God himself will stand at the grave of the BBC when it's put in the ground. And God will most certainly stand at your grave when you are put in the ground. And then the meeting was over. Um, uh, but th that's an understanding of the God of Exodus, right? And how many of us do get fearful when we feel like the culture or other people are trying to... Our culture isn't quite at the point of doing what Pharaoh was doing. And yet, we all feel threatened. And yet, our God is the same God as Exodus. And if he can bring them through Egypt, he can certainly get us through the 21st century. The gates of hell will not prevail against God's church. That's what Jesus tells us. And so Exodus opens up and really asks the question, and will continue to ask throughout the entirety of its chapters, what kind of God do you believe in? What kind of God do you believe in? Okay, we're off. Anybody have a question or something they'd like to say or observation? It would help if you read Exodus as you walked along with me. Otherwise, you're going to be stuck in a couple places. Okay, let's pray. Oh, Lord, um, open our eyes uh, that we might uh, see who we are in you, uh, but above all, uh, who you are. Uh, Lord, help us uh, to not simply think little thoughts about ourselves, but great thoughts of you. And in humility, submit ourselves to you, uh, to find our everything in you, to rely on you for our everything. And Lord, um, when life is hard and bitterness sets in, Lord, that you would uh, lift up our countenance and that we might uh, know your strength and your might uh, for you are the God who is mighty to save. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.